Well, before Wellesley comes to speak from the Word of God, we're going to read the passage that he'll be speaking from. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of God. Let's keep that passage open, shall we? And let's pray for God's help to understand it. Father in heaven, as we come to your word now, please help us to see in your word what you'd have us see. And help us to spend long enough thinking about these things, pondering these things in the week ahead, praying into these things, in order that what you have to say to us might change us ever more into your likeness. We pray this individually. And we pray it collectively as a church here in Long Crendon, and we pray it for the glory of your name. Amen. Now, if there's any uh, teachers here this evening, then the word Ofsted is probably a word that will send shivers down your spine. The Office for Standards in Education. And if Ofsted have ever been to your school, I'm seeing Elizabeth smiling at the back there because it wasn't too long ago I think for you Elizabeth but if Ofsted come into your school to to monitor to evaluate performance and they leave no stone unturned they analyze every single aspect of school life now imagine for a moment that there was the equivalent for the local church the office for standards maybe in gospel work 
I wonder what sort of report we would receive at Long Crendon. If they were to analyze every aspect of church life, not just our public meetings, but our home groups, our different ministries, our family time behind closed doors, even our witness in the world, I wonder what sort of report we would receive. Outstanding? Good? Satisfactory? Or inadequate? And I wonder what sort of report the church in Corinth would have received in A.D. 55 when they first read this letter from the Apostle Paul. You see, the church had been formed just years before in A.D. 50 through the preaching and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. He was there for a year and a half proclaiming the gospel. And by the grace of God, the church was born. But as Paul moved on from Corinth, it seems that the the prevailing um, culture of Corinth was gradually and steadily creeping into the church. So not only was there now a church in Corinth, praise God, but there was also a lot of Corinth in the church. The Corinthian culture and and their values and their norms were beginning, beginning to infiltrate the life of the local church there in Corinth. And so a few years later, the Apostle Paul writes back to address some of these issues that I've tried to to summarize on the screen here. Firstly, in chapter 4, verse 18, we learn that the church in Corinth was a church that was full of pride and arrogance. And you see this coming up again and again throughout the letter. It's probably clearest, actually, in 1 Corinthians 12 through to 14. When we see the church using these spiritual gifts to elevate themselves rather than to edify and to encourage others. It was a proud church in Corinth. It's also a church littered with sexual immorality. Have a look on the screen, chapter 5, verse 1, and the first part of verse 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. It's either his mother or his mother-in-law. And not only were the church condoning this behavior, they were actually proud of it. They were boasting in what was happening. You see, Corinth was renowned at this time for its sexual immorality. In fact, the most imposing structure in Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And as we know from many other historical documents, it was also home to thousands of shrine prostitutes. A horrible blend of of sexual immorality and and so-called religious worship. But you see, what was happening up on that hill, the Temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, wasn't actually as bad as what was happening in the church. Things were happening in the church in Corinth that not even pagans would tolerate. It is a proud church, it's an arrogant church, and it's a church littered with sexual immorality. It's also a church where fellow believers were taking each other to court. Rather than forgiving each other, this is chapter 6, verse 4, rather than forgiving each other and coming to table, round the table of fellowship and, and discussing and talking about their differences prayerfully together, they were suing each other on a Friday and then rocking up to church on a Sunday. It's not surprising that there were divisions within this church in Corinth. 
But fourthly, and maybe most strikingly, some in fact are the most cutting words in the whole of 1 Corinthians, are those in chapter 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. When the people of Corinth gathered together for their corporate worship, it should have been a time that encouraged God's people and honoured God's name. It was, in fact, a time that discouraged God's people and dishonoured God's name. Your meetings, says Paul, do more harm than good. They were destructive rather than constructive. And so here we find in Corinth a church in a bit of a mess, a proud, immoral, dysfunctional, disordered, and divided church in desperate need of reform. And if Ofsted or an equivalent had have been around in AD 55, then I imagine it would have been a church placed under special measures, maybe even threatened with closure. Hence the need for this letter. And in it, Paul does two things, essentially. Firstly, he identifies some of these issues that we've begun to think about, as any good report would. But secondly, and importantly, Paul then applies the gospel the glorious, life-changing news of Christ crucified. And he applies that gospel to all these different issues of church life in order to bring about reform, change within the people who were gathered there. And even though we might not face exactly the same issues this evening in Long Crendon, here's the reality. We too, like every church this side of heaven, are in need of reform. We need to be changed. We need God to tend to our hearts individually and collectively that he might reform us as a people for the glory of his name. And so we can learn much from the Apostle Paul and how he, how he pastors this church and brings the gospel to bear upon everyday life in order to bring reform. Two headings for us as we work our way through these first 17 verses. And the first one there is the reality in verse 1 to 9. These people have been called by Christ. These are believers in our language. And secondly, the purpose in 10 to 17. These people have been called by Christ and set apart by Christ in order to be united in Christ. Called by Christ in order to be united in Christ. So let's take a look at the reality together. I'm actually going to read to you the first nine verses of chapter one again. And as I do, please listen to to the warmth and the affection of these opening words that Paul addresses the church with. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait 
for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. They're remarkable words, aren't they, really? Despite this devastating report that has come back from Chloe's household in verse 11, and and by other means, of course, as well, Paul's opening words, even as he hears all these things that are happening in this church in Corinth, his words are still full of warmth and affection. Why? Because he views this church firstly through the lens of the gospel. He sees these people firstly as saved and sanctified, a called people who've been set apart. You see, it's very easy, isn't it, to think of people in church sometimes as problem people, people who make life difficult, people we find it hard to get on with, people who sometimes muddy the name of the Lord publicly. And you know what? There's a lot of what we might call problem people in Corinth. But notice Paul doesn't call them that. Even though they are causing problems, he doesn't call them problem people. He calls them a sanctified people, verse 2, a people who've been called and set apart. He thanks God for them, verse 4. He gives them assurance, verse 8. He speaks them as people who've been called into fellowship with Jesus himself, verse 9. And he appeals to them as brothers and sisters in Christ, verse 10. In fact, Paul uses that little phrase, brothers and sisters in Christ, 33 times in this letter as a constant reminder of what our gracious God has done to bring messy people like them and messy people like us into his eternal family. And so I wonder whether we'd be as gracious as the Apostle Paul is. Do we see people firstly as problem people to be avoided or a sanctified people to be embraced? Do we see the mess in people's lives and, and stuff that's going on and just think, I've just not got time for those people. It'd be easy if I stay over here by myself. Or do we see each other firstly as people who've been called by Christ to belong, to be a part of this body of believers in order that we might care for each other, love each other, support each other, and of course challenge each other in order that we might move to a greater degree of holiness and maturity in Christ. Because that's exactly what Paul does in this letter. He doesn't condemn them as many people would, but he doesn't condone their behavior either. He will apply the gospel to their lives and exhort them again and again and again in light of what Christ has done, verse 4, by his grace, and in light of what Christ will do, verse 8, to make this a holy and a set-apart people. Just take a look at verse 8, if you would. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated there, keep you firm, literally means to place a solid floor under them. You see, this may be a wobbly church morally. It's wobbly in a lot of ways. It's a church in a mess. But as a church, as a people who've been called by Christ, they have the solid floor of the gospel underneath them. And with that foundation, God will keep his church, however messy, 
And God will shape his church, however messy, ever more into the likeness of Christ. And so we need to learn. We need to learn to see each other as Paul did, firstly through the lens of the gospel, to see each other as a people that God has called to himself to belong right now to this body of believers. Firstly, Paul addresses them as a people called by Christ. That's the reality. And secondly, the purpose. As a people that have been called by Christ, he calls them in order to be united in Christ. Have a look down at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul appeals publicly. That is a strong word. It is a warm, warm exhortation. And do you see how he appeals to them? As brothers and sisters in Christ. And he appeals in the name of the Lord Jesus to a group of people who profess the name of the Lord from their lips. And what is his appeal? Verse 10, second part. That all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you but you be perfectly united in mind and thought. No divisions and perfect unity. And Paul actually uses a clothing metaphor here that those words perfectly united literally means to be knit together, to be knitted together in such a way that there are no tears in the one piece of cloth, no divisions at all in God's church. Now, of course, the church will be diverse in many ways. A gathering of people with different interests, different backgrounds, different skin colors, different giftings, different ages, but with a common identity and a vital unity in Christ that embraces those differences and doesn't divide on the basis of them. But sadly, as we will work our way through this letter in the evenings together, we see that there are many tears forming in the one piece of cloth that is the church in Corinth. And the first tear that Paul addresses here is a division over Christian leaders. Can you see that? Verse 11 and 12. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, or Peter that is. Still another I follow Christ. You see, what we have here isn't leaders disagreeing with each other over a theological issue and people following that that leader or going to that church based on a significant theological issue. That's not what's happening here. This is a simple case of making celebrities out of church leaders and people following their favorites. Apollos' eloquence was probably favored by the more educated in the church. Peter's Jewish heritage was probably favored by the Jewish Christians in the church. Paul's no-nonsense preaching was probably favored by the common folk in the church who just wanted to be told it as it was. Oh, Peter's my favorite. Paul's my favorite. Apollos, he's my favorite. And it appears that little little groups were forming almost around these celebrity Christian leaders, and it was creating a tear in the church in Corinth. I remember being at um, 
spring harvest a good few years ago now in Minehead. And if you've ever been there, there was, uh, I think it's called Skyline, the place in the middle where, where the bookshop and things are. And I remember walking into Skyline in the middle and uh, there's a huge queue like going all the way around, the longest queue I've ever seen. And my eyes followed this queue all the way around to the front of the queue. Could not catch my breath. One of the main speakers on stage who just released a new book was sat there signing all these books. On the back of the book, a big smiling picture of him as this line of fans came to get their book signed. It's a classic case of I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow dot, 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 you fill in the blanks. And Paul says there is no place, no place for celebrity Christian leaders in the church. And it's a point Paul will come back to again in chapter 3 because it's so important. It's worth saying as well, I think this can be a particular issue in a growing church like Long Crendon is. When you've got multiple leaders, people end up following their favourite leader, or my favourite's Mark, my favourite's Neil, my favourite's Wellesley. All that ends up doing is creating little tears in the one piece of cloth that is the church in Long Crendon. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we wouldn't recommend churches to people on the basis of faithful Bible teaching and godly leadership. We do that all the time. When our students move on to university, we'll sit down with them and we'll talk to them about churches that are faithfully teaching God's word, where there's leaders that will humbly serve the gospel there. We do that. It's part of church membership. When, when members move on here from Long Crendon, when they move area, then we want to sit down with them. We want to point them in direction of a church that is going to look after them and teach them and care for them and love them. That's not favoritism. That's called pastoring people properly, but that's not what's going on here in Corinth. What we have here is a bad case of people following rather than Jesus following, and it's creating tears and divisions in the church. And if you're sat there this evening like I was when I was working this through, there's a, there's a big danger that we sit there thinking, uh, but we're immune to this, aren't we? It's a danger for us favoritism in these ways well i would suggest to us that it can be a danger for us all whenever we ask someone oh you might not do this maybe this is just me whenever you ask someone what church they go to that's normally enough to put them in a box in a category oh you go to that church do you hmm, that's interesting that particular denomination or that wing of the church and very, very quickly, we make a judgment about them already. And you know what? 99 times out of 100, their category is inferior to ours. And it ends up with us looking down on them a little bit and creating divisions and tears within God's church. That's exactly what was going on in Corinth. You see, we're not defined by our denomination or our affiliation. We're not defined by the fact whether we're conservative or charismatic. We're defined by what Christ has done for us at the cross. That is where true unity is found in Christ and nowhere else. No other measure 
Only what Christ has done for us. And it's why, I don't know whether you noticed when I read those first nine verses, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, nine times in nine verses, and it's the same throughout the letter. Paul keeps mentioning Christ as the basis for unity within the church. And he follows up those um, those, those words in verse 12 with three questions. Look in verse 13. Do you see them there? As he drives home this point even further. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer to all three questions is, of course, no. There's one head of the church, Jesus Christ. There's one Savior who died for our sins, Jesus Christ. And there's one name into which we're baptized and therefore belong, Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul continues to say, don't get into a muddle over who baptized you. Baptized by Paul, baptized by Apollos, doesn't matter. What matters is that you've been baptized into Christ because you trusted in what he has done for you at the cross. And Paul finishes in verse 17, didn't even come to baptize. Do you see that? I came to preach the gospel not with eloquence and wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. As we'll see next week, Paul resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Paul preaches, and Paul writes this letter. He keeps the gospel front and center in order to bring unity in this divided church. So as we draw things to a close, let me summarize some of the main applications that flow out of this passage. And you may want to jot a few of these down, possibly to take away. These are things to pray into. We hear from God's word, then we take these things away. And over the course of the week, we pray into them, we meditate upon them. What is the Lord saying to me? What is he saying to you? How is he calling us to change in light of what he has spoken to us this evening? Four things for you as we finish. Firstly, we must retain a focus on the gospel. It's the gospel that saves, it's the gospel that defines, and it's the gospel that unites. Question, what does it look like for you as an individual, as a couple, as a family, as a church, to retain a focus on the gospel in a world that is full of distractions? What does it look like to retain a focus on the gospel? Secondly, we must abandon any sense of celebrity in the church. Now, that doesn't mean we don't appreciate the gospel endeavors of others, but it does mean that there's no place for celebrity to elevate Christian leaders to that place. I don't consider myself a Calvinist, don't consider myself a Lutheran, don't consider myself a Tim Kelleran, I don't consider myself a John Piperan. I appreciate so much some of their theology and their wisdom, their expounding of God's word and their leadership, but I am firstly a Christian. That's who I am. I'm a Christian because of what Christ has done for me, verse 4. Thirdly, we mustn't be unnecessarily divided. Of course, division sometimes, sadly, is necessary. We cannot be fully and vitally united with someone who believes a different gospel. We can accept them and love them and care for them, but we, we cannot be perfectly united with them. But that's not the case here. 
Paul refers to these people as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow believers. And therefore, their differences should not be a reason for division. And then fourthly and lastly, we must view others through the lens of the gospel. People are always going to be difficult, right? We're all sinners. We're all going to make life difficult for each other. At times, we'll all muddy the waters of the Christian faith. But please, let's not view each other as problem people to be avoided. Let's not view others outside this room as problem people to be avoided, but as sanctified people to be embraced. Brothers and sisters who've been called by God himself to be united in Christ and at this point of time enjoy fellowship in this place together. That is Paul's purpose for writing this letter. And I pray at the start of our journey through it, it would be our prayer as well, that God would unite us together in his great gospel because a united church will bring glory to God. A united church will bring joy to the people. And a united church will bring salvation to those who are not yet his people. Why don't you take a moment just to reflect, maybe reflect on those four takeaways there on the screen. Jot them down now if you haven't already. What are you going to take away and think through and pray through and apply to our own lives for the good of the gospel in this place? And then we'll pray together shortly. Well, I pray that as we go into the week ahead, that today will have been helpful for us. Um, Remember what we looked at this morning. We want to be building God's kingdom about his purposes. We want to find our security in him alone. So let's continue to pray that for each other. And let's be encouraged by what we've learned together tonight, that we've been called by Christ and we're united in Christ. Um, This letter is wonderful. It starts with this wonderful heart of Paul for his people. Lots of lumps and bumps along the way as he has to rebuke and challenge and tackle issues head on. But the letter ends in a very similar tone to how it started. And actually that love goes all the way through. But listen to some words in the final chapter where Paul writes to the church and says, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be people of courage, be strong, do everything in love. And then the final verses of the whole letter, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Have a blessed week.